Miguel Siuco reading Be Here Now, his new piece of work on the theme of Elsewhere, commissioned by Edinburgh International Book Festival. Be Here Now, a short story by Miguel Siuco. It's exciting to get to know your new kitchen and its appliances. The white promise of the stovetop. A microwave with unblistered buttons and walls still spatterless. The fridge, unburdened, free of the steeped scents and mysterious residue of condiments collected in the ridges of the shelves. Swing open its door and it's as if the bulb was always on, like a welcoming porch light. The half-emptied boxes of Kung Pao chicken, spring rolls and chow mein echo those larger ones, labeled, stacked and half-unpacked in the bedroom, the hallway, the open concept living room. Jenna hangs a painting on a wall. Jenna asks me if it's straight. Jenna has a hard time figuring the latch out before opening the window. In rushes night air and the plaintiveness of a guitar being played by a distant neighbor. Something sets off the motion detector light in the backyard next door and Jenna's beautiful in its illumination. Still hungry, she asks me. Just looking up my new fridge, I tell her. I close the door and the kitchen is dark and unfamiliar again. Oh, fuck! I stubbed my toe, I say to Jenna, and she puts down the tinkling box of light bulbs and comes to me to wrap her arms around my neck and quietly whisper, Thank you for doing this. We spent yesterday afternoon writing my father's name on labels and sewing them onto his clothes. We rushed to check out from our motel and deliver his suitcase before visiting hours ended at the residence. He just stared out of the window in his room, pretending he'd forgotten who we are, refusing to acknowledge us when we spoke to him. Jenna and I drove the five hours home, squinting into the descending sun. She rattled off rationalizations for me, as if singing to music. I looked at her often to try to always remember how the sun lit up her green eyes. On the way we got lost. We argued, my map reading skills stubborn against her knack for recognizing landmarks. Even when we accidentally found our street, we couldn't distinguish our bungalow from the others. We'd forgotten what number it was. In the end, we knew our home only because it was the only one that was still completely dark. Jenna asks if I want to smoke a joint and explore the neighborhood. I tell her I'm too exhausted for anything but hitting the sack. The only thing more tiring than a Saturday spent packing is a Saturday unpacking. Her job at the conservatory starts Monday week. In the alcove off the living room, her bag of books and supplies sits beside her desk, like a schoolboy sulking over the last days of summer. I stand over the desk and fire up my laptop. Hey! I call out unprotected Wi-Fi from next door. Jenna peeks out from the bathroom and pulls her toothbrush from her mouth to smile widely. She clears her pile of clothes from the office chair and wheels it over. There, she says proudly, make yourself at home. She tussles my hair. She tells me she put in the mattress topper and bed sheets. No more sleeping bags, she says. Memory foam, she says, trying to entice me. Costco's best, she says. I'm not yet tired, I reply. I'll be along soon. It's not even eleven. 
She looks at me as if I'm hiding something, but decides against saying anything. She kisses me on the head and retrieves her stack of bridal magazines from her desk. She closes the bedroom door behind her. It is good to be home, even if home is unfamiliar. Jenna had done all the packing while I was away shooting. All last month, each time we Skyped, her bedtime, my dawn, I saw our apartment progressively stripped of its familiar IKEA items, cardboard boxes slowly accumulating behind my fiancé. Then there was her frantic call while I was covering a pro-democracy rally. The movers hadn't shown up. The new tenants were coming in the following morning. Then the sad text messages all weekend. She was driving from our city of five years, en route to somewhere entirely new to us both. Those brief moments of connectivity with Jenna grounded me, and for the first time in my life, I felt the pull between where I was and wasn't. Somewhere beyond my thrill of being so alive in a place of everyday death, beyond the adrenaline, beyond the confidence of a noble cause, the home Jenna and I had built was being dismantled for lives moving forward, and I wasn't there to be part of it. Never had I understood the soldiers and aid workers better, even if we were opposites, they impatient to change things while I rushed to capture things before they could be changed. The photos Jenna had emailed of the houses we could choose as ours, their bathrooms brightened by flash, and a tantalizing fragment of Jenna chanced in the mirror, served to both highlight the bloodshed and make it more unreal and therefore more bearable in the images I was preparing on my laptop to send to the wire service. Even though I had been on those streets only hours before, the quotidian horrors, the toddler with the feet blown off, the stacked bodies made almost anonymous by ubiquity but for the anguished embrace of relatives, all that felt as if from some Hollywood flick recently seen at the theater. We all have our own ways of coping, of sublimating or acting out, but Jenna's constant activity in the margins of my days and nights simultaneously soothed me and made me fear for our lives. I check my email. I'm relieved and disappointed there's nothing. I browse through some of my photos that made front pages. A soldier on his knees, diffusing an IED on the roadside outside a school, the swings in the background moving in the wind. A row of local militia facing off with angry residents who point and curse at them. A group of boys hiding behind mothers and sisters dressed in kneecaps, the women's eyes expressive against the expanse of black cloth. I showed those pictures to Jenna over dinner tonight. She said she was proud of me. I'm proud too, though I often fight the feeling I've grown into a vulture. Colleagues tell me I shouldn't think too much, but that strikes me as wrong. It's our responsibility to think, and it's our victory to bear it. I do take comfort in the old idea that we must witness suffering so that it may not be repeated. But callousness and naivety make strange bedfellows. I know I won't be able to sleep. I know by experience that it takes at least a week to negotiate the limbo between this world and the one I've left behind. Usually, as now, I say it's jet lag. Every day we fool ourselves, though some of us are more deserving of illusions. I surf the net, I check my email, 
I'm like a Jones. I'm, I'm, I'm like a smoker, jonesing for a cig. The online connections, like a rush of nicotine after a flight or a meeting. The headlines on the news sites are the same variations. A bombing in the Middle East, a shooting in, in the Midwest, an earthquake in China. Recurrences now too foreign and too familiar to me, to us. Twitter is a burst of noise that I can't negotiate right now. The Craigslist's ads or classifieds offer free stuff. Crap I don't need. Crap I want but don't have space for. Bamboo blinds. Broken dishwasher. Plaid couch. Taillights for a Volkswagen. Air hockey table with only one paddle. It's a shame Jenna won't appreciate a stuffed moose head in our living room. Wood pallets. A boulder? There's even a picture of it. It's a round boulder. I have a photograph somewhere of myself as a boy standing with my grandfather on a similar rock, taken in a valley in the Rockies of eastern British Columbia. I was too young to form an indelible memory of that time. The picture and my parents' stories have convinced me I remember it well. I can't recall touching my grandfather in his coffin a couple of years later after that picture was taken, though my parents tell me I did. But I have somehow retained, or maybe formed, a memory of standing on that rock, holding my grandpa's hand. I know what his hand felt like at that moment, its skin dry and rough like a corkboard, its flesh soft beneath, as if already falling away from his bones. I remember visiting the site of the internment camp, where he and my father had lived for four years. I'm not sure if my memories are of that very day, or of my parents' recounting of it, but I know I walked in what was by then an anonymous field along an unremarkable road. I can close my eyes and see the boarded-up building where my grandmother stood outside and told me it was there where the guards would look at her with anger and disappointment that she, a white woman, had come to visit the enemy. I googled the name of the village and find its official website hoping for pictures to fill those gaps in my memory. I click on a link. History. The 1890s. Gold Rush. 1901. Slocan becomes a city. 1921. Slocan Lake freezes over. 1947. Mrs. E.D. Popoff, elected first woman mayor in B.C. 1958. Slocan becomes a village. 1989, new number six highway completed. 2000, Springer Creek RV Park opens. No mention, no pictures of the camp where my grandfather spent his prime, my father his adolescence. On Facebook, I have four new friend requests. I don't know any of them. Monica Garcia has posted a picture on my wall. Who is Monica Garcia? Scrolling down her profile, I really don't remember her. Her profile pic is of her smiling, leaning into some guy who has his arms around her. There's an ostentatious pride in such photos of sweet pairs, showing off how much they believe in love. What I see is implied incompleteness, tacit neediness. I accept Monica's request, 
so that I can slideshow through her photos. Monica in front of the fake Eiffel Tower in Vegas. Monica bicycling. Monica with the four friends at a party, each dressed as a Spice Girl. Monica with family around a Christmas tree, everyone trying to outdo each other with hideous Yuletide sweaters. Monica carrying her infant nephew, gazing at him as if he was cute. What is she trying to say by sharing such pictures publicly? Look, everyone, I'm happy. Look, folks, life has treated me well. Could that really be true if you need to declare it? Is it less true if you need to memorialize it before it's gone? They're picture-perfect pictures from an imperfect life. Isn't that the truth? Every time we pose for a camera, we're making a wish without knowing it. I click on what Monica's posted for me. It's an old photo of myself. I look so young. I always pose that way, brazen, insouciant, like someone asking to be punched but hasn't found any takers yet. I even remember that party, this time of year many summers ago, home for my freshman year. It wasn't the first night I'd kissed Charmaine, but it was the first night she let me put my hand up her dress and a finger inside her. I remember that dress, how after we'd first made love weeks later, I'd picked it up off the floor. The tag read FCUK, and I thought, how fitting. I remember how she held me on the back of my motorcycle, how she squealed when I popped the wheelie, how I killed the engine and coasted up to her house with my lights off, and how she took off her shoes and tiptoed barefoot so as not to wake her dad. I remember her slender feet. How wonderful it is to be able to say those words without regret. I remember. On the highway home, I made myself speed beyond my comfort zone, the thrill multiplying everything from that evening, to the point that I arrived at our driveway with my hands and knees trembling. I remember laughing at my frailty. I remember calling her after sneaking into my own room to tell her I arrived safely. With memories like those, how could we have given up on each other? I look at the motorcycles on Craigslist. I look at the personals, the missed connections. I look at listings for cars, houses, collectibles, vacation rentals. I check my email. On Facebook, I find Charmaine's profile. Access is restricted to only her friends. I don't want to write her. Maybe I'm afraid of the decay that years will always divulge. I look up from trawling from, for whatever it is that I'm searching for. It's nearly three. Fuck. The tea kettle and chamomile are still packed, so I go to the porn tube and masturbate. I wipe myself off and check my email. I push myself away from the desk and stand outside on the uneven paving stones leading to our garage. The night is peaceful with its usual racket. I walk on our lawn. Overhead, an airplane passes sonorously, but I can't see it. I feel my way to the bedroom. Jenna snores quietly. Her face is lined in silver from the security floodlight in the neighbor's backyard that is on, then suddenly off. 
The next day, Jenna lets me sleep until noon. We spend the day emptying boxes, filling rooms, arranging furniture, framed paintings and prints, bric-a-brac, and boxes now useless. Before we know it, the day is over, and Jenna is lying on her stomach in bed, paging through a magazine for wedding dresses. She looks up at me and pats the space on the bed beside her. Come on, she says, closing her magazine. Let's look at this one, she says, opening a magazine for wedding locations. She flips through the pages that she's marked with post-its, displaying them like they were centerfold model models. A village outside Avignon. A historical hotel in New Hampshire. A beach in Bali. A loft with views of the New York City skyline. I smile. I have work to do, I tell her, on the computer. I promise I'll come to bed shortly. I check my email. I look at a couple of cartoon sites. One has an old man telling his grandson, When you get as old and gassy as me, the best investment you can make is a dog in a leather armchair. I look for Vespa accessories for a Vespa I don't own. On Facebook, I read the posts, statuses, conversations from my network. Danny is tired from work. Kenza is now in a relationship with Phil. Stephanie thinks sanity is overrated. Dito says the France-Algeria match was colonial comeuppance. Valdez says heatwave in NYC equals God's armpit, to which Catch says, sounds like New Jersey. Gilroy posted photos of her new vintage outfit. Someone I don't know, Caroline, posted photos of herself at a beach wedding. Maria has put on something like 50 pounds since I last saw her in high school, but she looks happier than ever. On Fran's wall, Elmer has posted a picture. It's of a framed photo of Fran placed in front of a coffin flanked by flowers. I click on it. There are 45 comments below. R.I.P. Fran. You were too sweet for this world, Franny. A shooting star, baby. The posts are dated last year. I click on Fran's profile. Her main pick is her smiling while windsurfing. Her basic info says she's interested in men and is looking for friendship, dating, a relationship, random play, whatever I can get, networking. Also listed are her past employment and current job, the school she attended, her favorite books and bands, the quotes she most loves, loved. She has 4,200 4, friends, had, has. On her wall, one of them has posted, Hi Fran, just saying hi wherever you are. We miss you. Hope you're dancing and having fun. I wonder how long her page will remain, how many months or years servers will keep our profiles, even when we're already somewhere else. I hope they outlast even memory. I watch old music videos on YouTube. Journey, Queen, The Smiths. I compare reviews on Weber and Broil King barbecues. On Craigslist, I look at the personals, casual encounters. White by top seeks MFM W slash cuck couple. BBC bull with nine inch curve for BBW. Attractive BF and GF 
visiting town ISO similar for same room sex or should chemistry be right soft swap I wonder how fine is this line between loneliness and lust I read the missed connections personals says one hot concert security guard sorry I laughed when you got re reprimanded for letting me pee behind the equipment van says another you you were the sexy carpenter in ripped jeans smoking ass Chevy Colorado Joe boxers I could see your pecs squeezing out of your shirt me I was a 35 year old housewife looking for a little something something on the side call me we can cuddle and watch true blood together I lie down beside Jenna and watch her sleeping her eyelids flicker with REM sleep she smiles at something it's as if it's at me she giggles where has she gone that makes her so happy how can I get there each following day passes like its predecessor unpacking hanging arranging eating talking avoiding discussing the wedding plans pretending I'm a typical guy sitting at the desk pretending to work until Jenna goes to sleep two days ago the email arrived my editor outlined my new assignment I deleted it this morning Jenna cooked breakfast for both of us for the first time since I got back happy Sunday she declared she stood at my bedside with breakfast on a tray I said I was still too jet-lagged and I turned my back on her I heard plates and glasses crash in the kitchen sink we didn't talk all day I slipped out to the garage and unboxed tools hardware cans of oil antifreeze solvents paint through the window I could watch Jenna in her bedroom arranging the closet by section for foldable shirts hanging shirts trousers underwear socks the final box in the garage was mislabeled it shouldn't have been put there I sit in front of it and unpack things one by one my old pencil case comics G.I. Joe figures photo albums soccer trophies I hold in my hand the Daruma doll my father bought me on my first trip to his ancestral prefecture it's as good as new it's red and gold papier mache still vibrant I place it on the floor and push it it rolls back and forth on its heavy bottom bowing repeatedly one eye is blank white space while the other is a yellow circle I drew in crayon long ago I remember rain falling outside the market my father explaining that the rumors are symbols of good fortune and strong determination people paint in one eye when they set out to do something he said and they paint in the other when that something is done I look at the painted eye I don't now remember what goal I'd set out to pursue I search the crayons in my pencil case until I find a blue one very slowly I color over the yellow Jenna calls my name from the back door where are you she says I finish redoing the eye it's now green Jenna calls my name 
I step out from the garage. There you are, she says. She smiles. Where have you been, she says. I've been wondering why you weren't with me. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.